0: FMC Fast Chat takes you inside the news so you can be in the know in 30 minutes. Hosted by Fair Media Council CEO and Executive Director Jackie Clement, Fast Chat features notables in news, media, and business.
1: On a scale of 1 to 10, how exhausting was it to cover this year's election?
0: Nine and a half. (laughs) (laughs) And why not a full 10? (laughs) I'm not completely burnt out but it was extremely (laughs) exhausting. Um,
1: And can can you encapsulate why that is exactly compared to previous elections? Because you've been doing this for a while now, so you've got plenty to compare it to.
0: Yeah, well, it's really a continuation of, you know, the fire hose of news throughout the whole Trump era. And he just put so much um, into the pipeline. I mean, one thing you got to say about him, love him, or hate him, is he generates, he doesn't just react. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we have to sort through all the stuff that he's generating that's extraneous to the campaign or that's meant to distract from the actual substantive issues of the campaign uh, if they're not apparently working to his benefit. Um, You know, that's, a lot more, when you add that, it becomes a lot more than uh, what happens in a normal presidential campaign, which is a lot to begin with.
1: Okay, all right. So uh, from where you sit overall, how would you say the media did covering this year's election?
0: Well, that's so broad that it's hard to say the media. Um mm-hmm. You know, I I guess I would come back to the first thought about how much Trump puts into the pipeline and, frankly, how much of it is lies that the media was challenged with. I saw somebody on a a cable channel liken it to the classic I Love Lucy episode. Uh, This was after one of the debates where they talked about fact checking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they said fact checking a debate that Trump is in is like the I Love Lucy episode where she's working in the chocolate factory and she's on the assembly line and the chocolates start going by so fast you can't even put them in their, you know, their packages quickly enough. Yeah. It's like you try to fact check one thing, it's false <laughs> and four other things have gone by before you can even, you know. So yeah. um, so it's, you know, I think in that context, um, people have done what they could. And people have certainly, you know, different media organizations have chosen up sides to different degrees. Um, when you say how the media is done, I mean, it's easy to give the first thought to the three main cable news channels and critique them. But then there's all the, you know, the old media television networks, uh, which, from what I read, still had a lot of viewers during the campaign, mm-hmm. um, ABC News in particular. And, you know, they're trying to strike a different tone than cable channels, which are trying to get eyeballs 24 hours a day. Um, and, of course, there's every single print outlet, which primarily means printed on a website at this mm-hmm. point. And there's, of course, social media. And maybe that's where the biggest challenges were for Facebook and Twitter and Mm -hmm. some others trying to figure out what their legitimate place in the world is. And and for for them, you know, I mean, it's hard to feel too bad for Twitter and Facebook, but I I do in a way because they, you know, just these techies who wanna provide a platform (laughs) and make money by having a lot of people come play on their platform like inventing the television set Uh, Mm -hmm. but then they realize that they've inadvertently created social dynamics and political dynamics that can be dangerous and so what do they do do they err on the side of censoring disinformation that might fall off a little bit into censoring things that aren't explicitly disinformation um, um, for the sake of safety, or do they err on the side <clears throat> of not trying to intervene and then letting Russia and others wreak havoc in the way that has gone down?
1: Yeah, so in a, in a lot of ways, it's conversations that we really haven't had before that have that pretty much rocked across industries, not just tech, but media. So one of the things you mentioned, though, is, you know, so much of the information that was put out there, whether purposely or inadvertently, there was a lot of misinformation, a lot of outright lies, a lot of kind of bait and switch. Let me, you know, let me say this to distract you from what's going on over there. Where's the media's responsibility in saying, I know this is disinformation, so I'm not going to cover it versus Let me cover disinformation and call it out.
0: Because in in some way, yeah, you know. It's a central question, and it's one that I struggle with personally every day. And my team discusses on a fairly regular basis when we're presented with these things. And I, I have not come up with a clear policy answer to that yet you know, and it starts from day one of Trump coming down the escalator, and saying Mexicans are rapists and drug dealers. And do you ignore that? So you don't amplify what is essentially hate speech? Or do you call it out? Because how could somebody as prominent as Donald Trump say that, and you ignore it, and let it give it a pass. That's the other way to look at it. Do you give it oxygen or do you give it a pass? It's a lose-lose. And, you know, um, so going all the way back then, I, I think we sort of ignored it a little bit at first, but then very quickly he was number one in the polls in the Republican primary race. And then that ups the ante because if, he's actually getting the support of a lot of the electorate then we're more responsible to start fact checking him and contextualizing him and not saying, oh, here's some reality TV show star who's also running for president, uh, so what? And so we could follow that thread you know, all the way through. And we just tried to take each thing on a case by case basis, which is just him being him on Twitter and why would we spend time on it when there are real issues to discuss and which are things that are having an impact or could have an impact on the greater world where we've got to deal with it because he's the president of the United States.
1: Okay. Take us, in, take us inside your show a little bit, because what I find interesting about you is when people were signing up for, for this show, you know, they can provide us with comments and questions in advance. More often than not, what people said was, well, in addition to them looking forward to hearing what you had to say on the issue, was that they actually rely on you for news and information. Not that they won't listen to you or or, um, pay attention to your show. It's that they actually rely on what you have to say. So that to me says, you know, you've bridged that gap between just being in the news to someone who is trusted in the news. And I think there's a big gap between those two, those two sides these days. So tell us, you know, how you managed to do that.
0: Well, if i accept the, the premise, which I'll only accept as a work in progress. Um, I guess, you know, you just try to come in good faith every day. And maybe because it's the context of public radio, where we're not looking at um, maximizing ratings, which can most easily be done by building a bubble, um, you know, an audience that's within one of the bubbles and then super serving them or something like that. Um, You know, I think the the underlying ethic in the nonprofit sector um, makes it a little bit easier To begin with, um, I think that the fact that it's a conversation show um, um, potentially helps, uh, you know, again, in the context of public radio, um, where we're trying to invite in different people. You mentioned the Peabody Award that is for radio that builds community rather than divides, which Mm -hmm. is a tough challenge. It's a public radio challenge, uh, part of the essential mission for so long, but it also is a bedrock value where we're trying to get people to listen to each other, not just talk past each other. And so structurally, um, it demands a little bit of good faith. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I think I personally am built... To see nuance in, in things, um, and so I like to, um, you know, acknowledge the uncertainties. I also have a public health background, so coming from that, uh, you know, uh, every, every now suddenly in the last year, everybody knows what an epidemiologist is and what they do. But you know, one of the things that I loved about studying a little epidemiology in school was learning to identify and articulate the certainties and the uncertainties Mm -hmm. in the attempt to observe the world. Um, So I think I'm a little built that way. And, you know, maybe that helps to build some trust.
1: Okay. All right. So how often when you do a show, you leave the studio, do you ever get a thought in the back of your mind? Like, oh, I missed a major question or I missed a major segment. And what what do you do? How do you recover from that? Does that prompt you down the line for other shows or do you go on air the next day and how do you handle it?
0: Yes, the the, the answer to the first part is uh, approximately five day five days a week that happens to me. <laughs> okay. uh, the The next part of the answer is, for me, it tends to be kind of what what you said. you know you could have asked that question in a few different ways like, um, what did I ask wrong or in, incorrectly or didn't follow up on or, you know, um, what piece of information got out there that was wrong or badly framed question? For me, it's usually errors of omission. That's Those are the ones that stick in my head anyway afterwards as, oh, I wish I had asked. I wish I had thought to follow up when they said such and such and ask this or oh i missed a piece of it that would have been important to also bring out that would round out the full picture um i don't have any examples that are popping right to mind but that's a common second guessing um when i quote leave the studio which now means leaving my dining alcove and going two and a half feet to my kitchen at the end of the cell and the the um, and yes, often that will prop that little hole that's there can sometimes prompt a whole spur of a conversation that can be an additional segment.
1: Okay. All right. So th- thinking about the sin of omission then, if you will, um, did you see anything in the election night coverage that you said, why, why isn't the media paying attention to this aspect
0: more than, election more than night, election night?
1: Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. I think from what I was watching, I was bouncing back and forth among the three cable channels primarily.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I felt like they were doing a pretty good job on election night, measured by contextualizing the sort of red mirage, blue mirage states, and how different states were counting differently. So some of those early states, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, the closed early in the evening and where they were allowed to count the absentee ballots beforehand. Uh, You know, you saw North Carolina is the perfect example of the blue mirage, you know, around nine o'clock on election night, as I recall it, with 70% of the vote in, Biden had a five point lead, um, five percentage point lead. And that starts to look pretty good for a candidate if all things are equal, but all things were not equal. This was mostly the mail-in ballot, which was, uh, you know, which leaned blue. And and then the red mirage that we're still dealing with from Pennsylvania and some other states where they weren't allowed to count those until later. And I felt like the networks were doing a pretty good job, but from what I saw of inoculating people against the bias that they could easily fall into, in in terms of later thinking that the election was stolen because the numbers started changing in the other direction late. So, you know, so there's, so there's that. <laughs>
1: okay. I a question from a listener, which is, if you could reform our election system, what would you change?
0: No, ah, ah, that's such a big question. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, my first thought goes to the Electoral College, um, mm-hmm. but I don't really know how necessarily, like I get the calls to just go to a national popular vote um, because things are skewed the way they are. But then I also think it's a progressive value to have some kind of proportional representation in things because you live in a tyranny of the majority too easily if everything is determined by 50% plus one. There are so many kinds of minorities, and I mean minorities in the broadest sense, all kinds of political minorities, let's say, who um, get disempowered in a 50% plus one system. Uh, But the one that we have with the electoral college I mean, the real problem is the Senate. So if you want to get me going on that, the fact that the Senate and what's the electoral college, it's the number of representatives plus the number of senators. And so it gets skewed a little bit by that. The Senate is much worse uh, when, you know, Wyoming has the same amount of power as New York and California and Texas, Florida. And it had maybe you know, that they had their reasons in 1787, uh, some of which weren't even so legitimate then. But but at least the states tended to represent the, the white male property owners who had the vote at that time from different states at different, <laughs> fairly identifiable interest state by state. That's not the case anymore when political interests tend more to line up urban, suburban rural exurban if you're going to look at it in a geographical sense. So I would start reforming our whole system of representative government there. Um, re you know reforming it around that kind of thing. I don't know what the right answer is, but I think those are questions.
1: Okay. All right. And one one other question that, that is popping up pretty frequently here is about just voting rules and procedures. Not being uniform in every state. I mean, wouldn't we be better off if we all played by the same rules and had the same deadlines?
0: Um, I think probably so for a national election, you know. And again, I, um, I I start on this as I do on many things from just sort of identifying the tension and respecting the tension between competing goods, and so. There's the good of something being national, and there's the good of states having autonomy. Um, um, when it comes to something like the presidential election, um, you know, while second-guessing myself even as I'm saying these words, I tend to think that if we had something more uniform, it would it might be more, more trusted um, and more fair. On the other hand, whenever you get to something that's going to be uniform in that federalized way, it's going to depend on who has power at the moment that the rules are created and Mm -hmm. and who's going to be advantaged and disadvantaged as a result of that. So sometimes the push and pull is good.
1: Okay. All right. Well, one of the things that did stand out these past four years, though, maybe more so than before, is the fact that basically every story turned into a political story. So we no longer had health coverage. We had health coverage as a political story. We no longer had climate change stories. We had climate change as politics stories. Um, do you see that changing?
0: No, I think reaction to that is that they always were. Um, okay. you know, I'm not sure there could be a climate story without a political story. If politics is the clash of competing interests Uh, Certainly the oil industry, let's say the whole fossil fuels industry has an interest in the outcome of that. And, you know, as Trump tapped into pretty effectively in this campaign, it trickles down to individuals and their families who work in that industry um, having interests that may not be the interest of the future of the planet writ large, but it's going to be political. Um, and of course, the same thing with healthcare. I mean, you know, whether it's insurance industry interests, which we could look way back and say that's primarily who scuttled the Clinton attempt at health reform in the nineteen nineties, um, to whoever's whoever's interest. You know, small business owners felt that they had a different interest in Obamacare, um, negative one in many cases, with the mandates that were placed upon them than all the uninsured people who the system wasn't (laughs) providing for. And so I I think they're essentially political.
1: Okay. But what do you think though with all of the polarization that's going on now, you know, it's as if people are turning to, again, the media, which is a broad stroke, um, and not necessarily one that flatters all of them. Is the media doing itself a disservice by turning everything into politics and thereby
0: driving more polarization? Um, I guess to the extent that it sells clicks, uh, it does that. Mm -hmm. Um, We would have said sells newspapers, now we say sells clicks. Uh, (laughs) But but the, the um, you know, uh, and, and but if, I don't know, in, a, in, a, in an era of decline, if we accept the premise that there's been a pretty long-term decline of the middle class in this country, in, a, in an era of decline, then there's more political struggle because of the scarcity. And so it would be nice to detach from politics, but it's not that easy. Um, you know, and then it also becomes certainly in the age of Trump, it'll be interesting to see how this changes in the age of Biden. Um, not as much of a compelling figure, but in the age of Trump, where everything is such a such a um, uh, a what, like a You know, I mean, he's got nothing if not a sense of creating spectacle. So if if we get to a point where everything's not as much of a spectacle, and we have the same political conflict of interests, um, and you know, then maybe it'll be less so. Michelle Goldberg, the New York Times columnist, had a piece recently about how Trump or the Trump era destroyed American culture, and what she actually meant by that was cultural product like people wa- aren't reading as much fiction as compared to non-fiction as compared to the past because everybody's obsessed <laughs> by politics um <clears throat> and so you know but conservatives say that too they they say um everything's become too politicized uh and that we should go back to family and community like local community organizations, whether they be, um, you know, your faith institutions or any other community organizations um, as more of the locus of your group identities rather than whether you're democratic or Republican. Um, so, So there's a critique there to be made on both sides, but I'm also wary of sweeping a lot of things under the rug. That were swept under the rug for a long time, you know. Like like what? Like in a media context, I think sometimes that there's a false nostalgia for the three network anchor days, uh-huh. uh, you know, the old networks of where Walter Cronkite and David Brinkley and whoever were, you know, were delivering you the news, and there were, weren't 53 little niches of media that tore everybody apart but but in a way in those days neither the real left nor the real right were happy um you know the liberal what the what what's the the joke the um everybody hates the liberal establishment the liberals hate it because it's the establishment and the conservatives hate it because it's liberal and yeah. and so you know there were a lot of women in minority, uh, ethnic minority interests that were not that well represented, you know? And there were probably culturally conservative interests that were not that well represented. And so there's, a a, to to some degree, what's been happening in the last few decades, I think, is a lot of groups getting a media voice who didn't have a media voice. And so now it's um, fractious, but some of it is just a reflection, more of a reflection of reality than what got swept under the rug before. I see. All right.
1: Well, well now, do you think, though, um, going into the Biden era, has Trump broken the mold of how you can cover a president? Or will we revert back to kind of the traditional old school of there's a White House press conference, we pay attention to it. You know, there's not as much tweeting going on, so we're not paying a, as much attention to the chatter on social media, or or has it all just changed and we just can't go
0: back? Yeah, I, I mean, it was, change, It was changing it already. You know, Nixon broke the mold, uh, yeah. right? Because the trust that was there, if we can use that as a line of demarcation, a certain amount of, um. Lack of skepticism on the part of the press. Not that, you know, not not that the not that I think the press before 1974 was um you know stenographers to power, but there was a new layer of skepticism about power that took hold in the Vietnam Watergate era, changed journalism for sure, and the way people look at the White House. Um, And then when technology changes and the media changes and there is social media and all these other things, um, you know, there's no going back on the one hand, on the other hand, um, I think it's going to be an interesting challenge to, for Biden um, to do what presidents do, which is push their interests because they're politicians from whatever party. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, go back to some norms that might be like a daily press briefing, which they just continued under Trump because they became so combative and go back to some kind of, some kind of a norm, but a norm doesn't mean everybody's getting along. There's still going to be a, a push and pull.
1: Okay. All right. Let me, let me get to a couple of questions here. Um, do you feel that politicians should not use social media?
0: I wouldn't say that. Um, as a blanket statement, uh, not on first blush. You know, I I remember thinking at the beginning of the Trump administration when people would say sometimes, but he shouldn't tweet so much. And I would think it's not that he was tweeting, it's what he was tweeting. I understand the impulse to want to go over the heads of the media and communicate (laughs) directly with the people. Ronald Reagan did that really well in his way um, and other presidents of both parties, politicians of both parties in their own ways. Uh, so I, my first impulse is not to say that they shouldn't use social media. I think they should use social media responsibly.
1: Uh, another question here. Um, you think the media should have been more forceful in its coverage of Trump or do you think
0: it went too easy on him? I think that it, that in general, the big major media have not gone too easy on him. Um, I think if you look at, you know, how tough the New York Times and Washington Post and the mainstream networks have been, um, I think they've been tough. And the Trump, the Trump supporters walk away with more grievance on that score. Um, not saying it's legitimate, but feeling more aggrieved by media coverage than people who thought that Trump got away with stuff. Um, you know, I think that sometimes major media were too tough on his language and didn't look at policy enough, uh, you know, like all these regulations that were undone, environmental regulations and all kinds of other things. They probably didn't get as much scrutiny because they weren't as sexy as his latest inflammatory tweet. It's that kind of going too easy. If there was a going too easy, that that uh, that I would identify it, you know, first reaction.
1: Okay. Do, yeah. do you see any of that aggressiveness stemming from Trump's stated
0: dislike of the media? Yeah. Could be yeah, yeah, and it's I mean it's not just dislike, but when he falsely labels journalism the enemy of the people, um I think there's I you know maybe it's just a human instinct that people will get their backs up when they're unfairly attacked. Um, but by the same token, we we have to cover unique presidency <clears throat> uniquely you know i mean that's one of the tensions that we live with every day i think which is we have an impulse you know most of us in in journalism to be quote fair and at the same time we have a responsibility to not engage in false equivalencies and we have um, I think these days a sophisticated understanding of ourselves as not being able to be entirely objective, um, even though that's a nice thing to strive toward, but then understanding that there are many points of view and start and trying to realize that we come from our own experiences, um, <clears throat> even if we come in good faith, that tends us toward the relative, but then Trump comes along and he flies in the face of truth so much that while we're trying to check our bias toward thinking we're objective, <laughs> we then have to say at the same time, have to double down on saying, but wait, this is true. This isn't a matter of debate. This is a fact. And so, you know, it it makes it difficult for the media to... Um, we are in a difficult position because of because of that tension and the objectively unique situation that we've been in with this degree of untruthfulness and including about us.
1: Okay. All right. All right. So I don't think there's anyone out there that will disagree. It's been a challenging four years in terms of covering politics, but I w- I want to kind of turn this on its ear, which is you must have learned a lot over these past 4 years which seem like a lifetime in and of itself be, between politics and the pandemic and, and how it's just sort of changed how we live what what would you say is the greatest takeaway that the
0: media has learned over the past few years pride of place journalism is a word that Journalist, let's say, is an identity that journalists wear with more pride than ever before. That we take that very seriously. I'm not giving you a good answer because I don't think we didn't take it seriously in the past. Uh, But it just, you know, I mean, it seems to me that people are in an era at the end of a decade where the news economy has been falling apart. People are still going to journalism school like crazy. And I think part of it is because of the Trump era, when people see journalism as a level of public service that they may not have seen it as much as... The Fair Media Council is a 501c3 nonprofit organization advocating for quality news and working to create a media-savvy society. For more information about the Fair Media Council and upcoming Fast Chat shows, check out fairmediacouncil.org.